from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. From Louisville Public Media. Support for this podcast comes from KTC Building, seamlessly blending the classic character of older structures with 21st century amenities and technologies, residential and commercial remodeling projects of any size. Details at kylethompsoncompany.com. I'm Kyla. And this is Jay. And you're listening to Strange Fruit Podcast. Welcome back to listeners. Uh, Doc, I am super excited for today's uh, conversation. Yes. You know, I am born and raised in Kentucky. You and are. Although I lived every, every place else, in my own mind, you know, Kentucky's a great place for farming stuff. You know, of course, tobacco grows really well here. And in fact, hemp grows really well here. It but, does, yeah. You know, so this, this and didn't they just legalize again the cultivation of hemp here did, in the state? They won't legalize daggone marijuana, which can solve a whole bunch of problems. And again, Very I'm much not, so. We don't move me, but you know, it can do it can do a lot of stuff in terms of eradicating poverty, certainly you know, uh, education, child, you know, Kentucky. And we've seen that. We've seen that in Colorado and we've seen that in other states that have legalized. And in fact, Illinois is the newest state saw, to legalize yeah, recreational yeah. as well as medicinal. So yeah. So all that to say that in my own mind I fashion myself a farmer of sorts. And again, <laughs> yeah. have I ever farmed? Jason Vera Farm? No, yeah. I have not. Have I been to a farm several times? Okay, so <laughs> okay. let me say that. And okay. then also couple that with my love of the TV show Queen Sugar. Yes. And so what I love about Queen Sugar is that it really is a glimpse, and I'm sure it's not the same, and you all get, once you get to the topic, but it gives a glimpse into the notion of black folk farming, right? Mm-hmm. And if you remember those very early seasons, there was kind of this struggle about, do we keep the land? Do we sell the land? Yeah. We all kind of like uh, urbanites, and <laughs> right. dad, daddy's dead, and what do we do with this land that's barren? And, mm-hmm. and that was really the struggle and, about. And that's really, really historically accurate. A yeah. lot of folks who found out that they had ancestors and descendants yeah. in the South, and when they found out they had plots of land and farms, they simply didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to cultivate, and those traditions weren't carried down um, through their families. And so a lot of folks actually ended up selling uh, their land and missing yeah. out on tremendous yeah. opportunity. Mm-hmm. So so on that note, I was uh, it was really super cool. And this The article I saw was several years old, but again, it felt really timely for me. The article was called... After a century in decline, black farmers are back and on the rise. And so please welcome from the Soul Fire Farm in upstate New York, author Leah Penniman. Leah, how are you? <laughs> I am great. I like you both so much already. Oh, well, thank you, me. Ditto. Uh, so listen, so I said you're an author because you, you have a book, of course, called Farming While Black, but I guess it's better to describe you as a farmer. Is that correct? That is correct. And actually, speaking of Queen Sugar, so Natalie Basile, who was the author of Queen Sugar, was at our farm last week. Look at that. And wow. interview for her next book, which is going to be about black farmers, which I'm just so excited so about. So basically, yeah, the spinoff are... would basically be based on you. But I, I think it's so <laughs> very, very that. cool. And I love that you describe the important work that black farmers do, um, Leah. You say black farmers not only are growing healthy food, but they are providing healing, that they're healing traumas, that they're instilling collective values and the change in the way that we think about the land. Talk a bit about, in a general sense, what the value of black farming is and does for us. Then we'll talk about some of the people that you, that you highlight in your piece. But what, so how, how is black farming healing trauma and instilling collective values? Oh my goodness, farming is so important. You know, I mean, while the land was certainly the scene of the crime, as my farmer friend Chris Bolden Newsom would say, you know, she was never the criminal. I really believe that the land was the source of our sustenance, our power, our connection to our ancestors, all the way through all that enslavement and sharecropping and violent expulsion from the land. And I think that we as a generation right now are realizing that we left more than oppression behind on those red clays of Georgia. You know, that we go around these paved streets of the urban north And we feel like a little piece of our souls is missing, our culture is missing, and so forth. And it's only when we rekindle that connection with land on sovereign terms that we're able to find the wholeness of ourselves again. And so I've been farming since I was a teenager. I run Soul Fire Farm with an amazing team of eight other folks. And we train up hundreds and thousands of black and brown farmers every single year. And I would say that's a pretty universal experience, that coming back to the land is really coming back to who we are as a people. 
Well, we both absolutely loved this article. And in it, you also talk about not only is farming sustaining many black communities in and around the rural South, but that survival strategies from past black farmers that were inherited from ancestors, such as collectivism and commitment to social change. How is black farming connected to social change and collectivism? Mm, I mean, you know, Brother Malcolm X was talking about how land is the basis of revolution, right? And yes. uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was talking about how if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, nobody can push you around or tell you what to do. And this was very literal. This was not metaphorical. So if you just look at a snapshot of the 1960s, right, people were share, black folks were sharecropping. They didn't own their own land, right? And as soon as they went down to register to vote, to sign a petition, to join the NAACP, they'd be, they'd be locked out of their homes. Right. And so Mama Fannie Lou Hamer realized, you know, we need actually to own land. So she created the Freedom Farm Cooperative and brought sharecroppers onto it um, in a co-op fashion to own together and to farm together. Uh, Shirley Sherrod and Charles Sherrod did the same thing at New Communities. So really finding this connection between our ability to engage in civil rights activity, um, being very, very tied up with our ability to own land and farm for ourselves and not be serfs on somebody else's land or tenants on somebody else's land. Yeah, there was, there was a point in time where there were lots of black farmers, obviously, but you highlight in your piece that there were a number of factors that led to the loss of some 14 million acres of black-owned rural land. You say that for decades, the government was complicit in discrimination against black farmers, for example, farm loans and assistance. You couple that with racist violence, as you mentioned, like white folk being upset, trying to run us off our land. Talk a little bit about the history. Like, was there a point in time where black farming was was the thing, there were lots of black farms, then how do we end up to a place where I think less than 1% of, of farms are black-owned? Absolutely. And I mean, we could actually go way back 10,000 years to talk about that, but yeah. just to stick with in the United States. I mean, after emancipation, you know, a bunch of uh, black pastors actually got together with General Sherman of the Union Army and said, all we need is some land, right? So we can have homes and plant fruit trees and tell our children, these are yours. Um, so the idea of 40 acres and a mule came about, but of course that was never manifested. Uh, president reversed the order. Any land that was given was taken back. So we didn't have reparations of land. Quite the, the contrary, right? The, the slave owners actually got reparations for their lost so-called property. Um, but despite that, Black people did manage to uh, save up their Sunday money uh, from working odd jobs and, and purchase almost 16 million acres of land by 1910. But as you as you noted, almost all of that land is gone, and not because Black people didn't want to hold on to it. There's a whole combination of trickery that went on, you know, the, the USDA denying loans and support. We had the Ku Klux Klan literally burning people's houses and kicking them out and taking their land. Uh, tricky things with taxes and air property and ways of, of um, increasing the rate of foreclosures so neighbors could annex the land. And long story short, we've got almost none left. Um, in fact, 98% of the rural land value is controlled by white people uh, today, which is more racially skewed than it's ever been in the history of this country. Wow, wow. And you yeah. mentioned a number of black farming communities and black farmers themselves that have formed collectives and organizations around sustainability of those communities. So you talk about uh, the Black Dirt Farming Collective, for instance, leases two acres that Harriet Tubman once rescued her parents and yeah, nine other the, people yeah, from enslavement, and it was a first stop on the Underground Railroad. Talk to us a little bit about the Black Dirt Farming Collective as well as Seeds of Change, Solidarity Network, and some of the other black farmers you spoke with. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I feel like I wrote this in 2016. There's been so many black farmers, you know, uh, that we've been connected with through the National Black Food and Justice Alliance and black urban growers. So, you know, shout out to all y'all. I'm not ignoring you, but certainly Black <laughs> yes. Dirt, um, Blaine and Aaliyah Fraser and those other folks are, are wonderful. They're impressed in Maryland on Harriet Tubman's land, uh, which is very powerful. And they're focusing on growing natural food for markets in the D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia area. And they also host these amazing activist training programs uh, that they call Afroecology. And so really looking at these Afro-Indigenous roots of environmental stewardship. Um, you know, organic farming wasn't made up by white people. Uh, we have had raised beds and worm composting and cover crops for a long time in our community and many beautiful innovations. And so I really love the way that they center that, you know, this is part of our heritage. Yeah, I love mm -hmm. it. Are there particular kind? because you, you highlight folk, uh, Georgia, Maryland, 
are there particular types of crops that grow better depending on where one is located? Talk because you know, like I said, I don't know much about farming, but I know the Kentucky can grow tobacco well. Talk to us a bit about like what grows well there where you are. What grows well in Atlanta? What kind of crops are Black people producing? Oh my goodness! I mean, there's so much to say about that. I mean, certainly we have our heritage crops, right? So our ancestral grandmothers back in the 1700s, when they were watching their family members get snatched up by slave catchers and put into ships, they made the odd. Uh, audaciously hopeful decision to gather up their okra, millet, cowpea, black yeah. rice, and goosey melon, you know, sorghum seed, and they braided that seed into their hair, wow. believing wow. against odds in a future of tilling and reaping on soil. And so we definitely try to carry on those exact seeds. You know, we try to grow the cowpea and the okra. But of course, depending on your region, you know, there's different things that grow. It's very cold up here in upstate New York, right? And so the okra won't even produce very well unless you put on some black plastic, right? Um, <laughs> But we have, you know, this is really good grazing land. So we do uh, poultry and chickens or definitely have a deep relationship with African-American people, mostly because it was the only livestock that we were allowed to own back in the day. And so we developed, got really good at chickens, you know, but we do carry on and we have a great pride in uh, being good at raising poultry. Right. And of course, up here. Um, on our rocky clay soils, they also do wonderful with greens. And so your, your callaloo and your collard greens and uh, broccoli greens and things like that grow beautiful here. And so we make sure that the members who join our farm, you know, get a nice full box every week that, that has the richness of the, the vitamins and the greens. Yeah, I mean, that just sounds so fascinating. So you talk with Lindsay Lunsford, right, who has a farm, the Tuskegee United Leadership and Innovation Program. And in that program, she works with a number of young people and starts to talk about how wonderful, you know, um, young people respond to the idea of farming. Can you talk to our listeners a bit about how farming and farming sustainability is important yeah, for young, young folks? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And Lindsay Lunsford is fire. So she's at Tuskegee University, which is really the mecca of black agriculture. I mean, you're talking about the place where Dr. George Washington Carver came up with regenerative agriculture and got everyone to heal their soil with beans and cover crops. You're talking about the place where, you know, Dr. Booker T. Watley was was working on um, the pick your own concept and CSA. And so Lindsay is just carrying on that tradition. She's also a poet. She's a spire. So that's why the kids love her in addition to the farming. Um, but, you know, we have youth programs here, too. And I would say that you know, certainly we're very, very happy when they come here and they're excited about maybe being a farmer or, you know, eating more vegetables. But more than that, what I think happens when young folks come out is they look around and they see black and brown folks in leadership making their dreams come true. Like we built this house with our hands. You know, we built mm. this farm with our sweat and our blood and our savings and all of that. And so they look and they see, well, if folks can do this thing, which I had never imagined was even possible, they're growing their own medicines and food and, you know, making a difference in their community. Maybe there's something bigger for me than what society is telling me about early death through violence or incarceration or at best, you know, joining the corporate rat race. You know, maybe there's something I can do with my dreams. And so I think that that's really powerful, too, to have those role models um, and possibility for a different kind of future. What are your thoughts, Leah, about the folks who are creating these urban gardens and urban, uh, you know, kind of food sustainability programs who really don't know the history or contemporaneous relationship that black farmers have to the South and how black farmers have been here, are still here? What do you say to those folks who say mm, food justice tied in, and farming, to, you know, tied to social justice is a new thing, an innovative thing that we've never done before? How do you feel about that? You talk about white folk. You talk about white folk. Yeah, yeah, not, not black folk. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> the Whole Foods <laughs> children. Talk, yes. White listeners, we talk about your white listeners. Yeah, yeah. The, the Whole Foods children. <laughs> and Right, yes. I mean, they just make me tired, but I have patience because <laughs> I know that this education is not provided to us, right? Like, I had to go around and look for this education. I also believe, as a teenager, when I was getting into farming, I thought white folks invented all this stuff because that's who's mm -hmm. at the conferences that I was you know, had access to and who write in the articles and so forth. You know, and I really had to dig to understand that Cleopatra was the first Burmy composter like thousands of years ago, right? Raised beds came out of the Ovambo people in Namibia. You have the um, co-op movements in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s coming out of the black community, right? So food co-ops are not a new thing. Um, but I think we really need to share that education um, and also encourage people to understand that the solutions exist within our own communities. You know, it's not that 
white folks need to go into black communities and start a garden to save us or help us. We have expert growers in our own communities who just don't have the resources and support to actualize and manifest that expertise. And so I really think the role of allies or so-called accomplices is to make sure that we're supporting that homegrown wisdom right from within the community and not coming in and, you know, kind of trying to be a savior and, and fix things. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, what, is, is, there, is there a strategy, Leah, either internally among black farmers or is there um, a governmental priority in terms of uh, increasing black farm ownership or is, is that a thing? Is there, is there any effort to to compensate for those years where we were um, shut out of yeah, bank like, loans yeah, are, are there and funds access available? to land? Yeah. Are there, are there, is there, you know, like in the, in the inner city, of course, there's like vacant lots you can kind of reclaim. What are, what are some, some ways in which uh, there are people are strategizing to increase black farmership or is there, or is that happening at all? Well, it's a good question. I mean, just the fact that there's even a national conversation starting around reparations is profound to me. Um, and I saw a New York Times op-ed that was talking about land was stolen from black people, right? So I think that, that we're on the crest of something big. But to answer your question in short, not really. Um, in the 80s and 90s, black farmers got together and sued the federal government in a class action lawsuit called Pigford v. Glickman. That was settled in 1999. It was the largest civil rights settlement in the history of this country, almost $2 billion of payouts. But because so many black farmers were displaced, we're talking about an average of $50,000 per person, which if y'all ever tried to buy land, you know that's not going to get your house and your farm Mm -hmm. back, right? So it was really more than anything a symbolic victory. And it did cause certain departments in the government to have to wake up and say, oh, we better not do this discrimination thing because we're going to get you know, sued again. And so that that is an important shift. And you do see in a few departments uh, the attention to, you know, diversity and so forth. Uh, But we clearly have a long way to go because last time I crunched the numbers, you know, white farmers were getting the benefits of those programs at a a very disproportionate rate compared to. Oh, wow. So it's like basically the same manifestation of affirmative action, essentially, where for for many years, white women have been the largest beneficiary of affirmative action in the workplace and in public venues, right, where those programs mm-hmm. were created for people of color. Yeah, wow. Well, exactly. I'll tell you what, Leah, before we uh, before we let you go, I have one last question for you. So I remember, again, again I aspired to be a farmer, Doc, but I remember <laughs> being in grade school when you would take a cup, right, you put some water in the cup. Oh, in the dirt, yeah. You, you, you would cut the top oh. off of a carrot or cut a, cut a potato in half, put the potato in the water in the dirt, and then you yes. can grow your own potato or carrot, I guess, top. At your house, so yeah. So my question for you, Leah, is for someone like me <laughs> who's aspiring, you know, to be a farmer again, reclaim my roots, where can I start? Should I start very small with the carrots and potatoes? Should I do some tomatoes in my house? Where can I start if I want to get back into this thing? Oh, my God, that's the cutest question. So you're making me think of this quick story I want to tell you, which yes. is that my wonderful sister, Naima, who's also a farmer, you know, we travel a lot. We have some farms internationally that we collaborate with and so forth. And so we get to Haiti one day, and the room we're staying in, the very first thing my sister does is she takes out this little glass container with a perforated top, puts yes. some mung bean seeds in it, rinses it out with water, and puts it on the table to start sprouting bean sprouts in the room. And she's like, I always got to be growing something anywhere I am. So talk about starting small, right? You can start with your I love that. But here's the thing. The earth has been calling us home. The earth has been missing the bare feet of her black and brown children. And it's just so ready to compost our trauma into hope, so ready to provide nourishment for us, to heal us from the ailments of modern life, right? And so it doesn't have to be that everyone needs to go out to the rural community, but certainly please do visit Soul Fire if you're in the area. Um, but it can be as small as a tree in the park, a community garden plot, you know, joining uh, CSA that's run by a black farmer, making sure you're getting that food onto the plate plate of your children. Um, I think there's so many ways to get engaged in the food system because it's everything from sunshine to plate. So there's something for everyone. And I just encourage people to tune in and listen to that call of the earth. I love it. Well, the next time we're in uh, Albany, New York, we're going to stop by the farm. No, definitely. Check it out. Listeners, our guest today has been Leah Pinneman, who is a farmer and educator at SoFire Farm in upstate New York. Leah, thank you so much for being with us. I learned a lot. I feel like I'm ready to, to conquer We'll go down to old town. Oh, my God. We'll see. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how you conquer town. Leah, yes. take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye, Bye Leah. All right, so let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we can talk some juicy fruit. Okay. Tell people who we are. You're listening to Strange Food Podcast. To support the work we do on Strange Fruit, visit donate.strangefruitpod.org or look in our show notes for a link. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Strange Fruit Podcast. All right, so what is making news this week? Well, you know, it's been a couple weeks ago that you talked about the bear. <laughs> yeah. The, bear, the bears that were behaving very badly. Yes. But apparently, the, the bears are still up to no good. Yes. Uh, um, so this particular <laughs> bear... Uh, it was in, in Montana. Mo- yeah, Masula, Montana. <laughs> and this, I think, was a baby bear. It was okay. a baby bear. It was like who, seventy. It was like seventy pounds. Well, one, the baby bear. Well, he was three years old, which I don't know if that's if bear life. That's still a baby. It's a but ba- yeah, it's still a baby. baby. Human, yeah. Human but the baby basically walked into a closet. Well, I guess crawled or or. I guess how bears. Know, was it hop, bear hop? I don't know. I feel like bears walk. I feel like they're walking and getting bucked. No, I, think they, but, I think they like. Well, okay, we can walk. Okay. Yeah. So the little bear, the baby bear, went into the closet uh, for well, it was a like nap. A, like a mud room. Yes, like, it was know, like, like a, a mud, mud room, room, which I guess like a sunroom except places. Like I, yeah, room. I guess where a mud room is where people store their shoes, shoes and exactly, coats yes, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And I guess it's called that because maybe your coats like and muddy? shoes are muddy. Yes. But so basically, it's so, like the patio. Okay. Yeah, basically. And so the little baby bear was getting bucked, wandered into the mud room, took a nap, but not only did the baby bear take a nap, okay. but they also locked the door oh, behind them and locked themselves. Be, he wouldn't be bothered and disturbed. Yeah, during his... yeah, like, don't wake me. Like, basically, hobby when I take yes, my naps. Basically. Like, yes, basically. Yes. Like, don't, don't wake me, yes. Yeah, they only weighed 70 pounds and initially ripped the room apart after okay. be, uh, being discovered uh, that the little bear was trapped. Um, they tranquilized the bear and took the, and took him back to their little baby bear environment. Yeah, but what if I was like that, when, but... the, when the police come, they like knock on the door, like, "Excuse me, Miss Baby Bear." <laughs> he like looks up, he like yawns, he's like, "Oh, no, yeah." And he pays it, but that's what that's what I live. Yeah. I live for animals. That's what I do. Like I'd be like, you'd be like, "Jay, wake up!" I'm like, oh, "No, it's not time to wake up yet." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, hold back, yeah. Back to sleep. Yeah. So I just love that the baby bear one locked themselves in in, in the closet in the mudroom for their nap. Then when they're caught, uh, they're like. Yeah, as opposed to like being scared or being like, yeah, yeah like or intimidated. Well, let me ask you or... this: Do you think because I can't imagine living in bear country? Do you think you could live in Montana, Alaska, whatever state where people are like literally, you know, they're like, oh, just put your food in the tree or just oh, lock your door behind? Like, I don't want to live alongside. Oh, bears. I would could love you it. Do that? Oh my god, I would love it. I mean, you remember you the other day? Oh, are you crazy? You remember the other? I love Girl, catching. A deer is different I than love a bear. seeing wild animals in their environment. So remember the other day we were we driving. Saw a deer magic. First of all, we saw three. Okay. And they were all mama deers, uh, women deers, and little babies. But they weren't bears. But they were getting balked and they were eating next to somebody's house, and they yes. were very unbothered about their consumption of their grass. And yes. it looked like new, like laid grass too. Probably but fresh, fresh I, grass. I had a full stop. You did basically. To I, like, the break. My hand on the dashboard because you were like. <laughs> But my thing is magic. Humans, we eat deer. I, like, I, deer, I don't deer, eat deer. deer no. Deer majestic. It's I, way too magical. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't eat deer. deer. No. People do. Bears, if I see a bear eating grass, I don't think I'm going to see it quite the well, same way Well, I feel like in places in Montana, they sell bear testicles. I also think they... Some, so uh, yes, they up? do. No, up? I'm no, not. No, no, I'm not. Look no, at no. I'm serious. Okay. I'm serious. When me and Missy used to watch Andy Zimmerman, World's Bizarre Foods... Anytime he was in North America, it was always bull testicles, bear testicles, frog testicles. I mean, it just—it was always eating testicles. Are supposed to be like an aphrodisiac, or supposed to be like I don't know. People or? people find them yummy in some cultures. They're considered delicacies. I mean, I just I don't. I'm not sure. I get the I get the notion of the rooter to the tutor because you know, like let people believe, like you know, you don't waste waste out whatnot. Yeah, the rooter to the tutor. But who says? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I don't know who came I'm, up I'm, with I'm, it. I'm going to look over this animal, and I'm going to think, well, what looks the most appetizing? Not, <laughs> not the breast, not the wig, not even the rump roast. I'm going straight for the goat ass. <laughs> and it's like, you, know, you know, for me, well, it's a you think of it, if you think of it as not different than, like, if you think of steak and filet mignon, right? The reason why it's so tender is because it comes from the buttocks, Right. So it's not too far fetched. But the balls, not come from the butt. I just couldn't do the testicle yeah, animal yeah. thing just because of the like. I would be afraid. Like I don't like any snack that like busts all in your mouth like that. I don't like That's, that. I, no, no, I'm serious. All, first of all, well, I don't like that. We're probably going to get censored. Well, first of all, I don't but, like but, that. I'm gonna get censored. But I don't. But, I don't like Twinkies. I don't like <laughs> ho hos. I don't like any kind of thing that has a different part to it. Yeah, I, Excuse I, me. I, I, I can almost guarantee you, I've never had, I've never had, I can almost guarantee you <laughs> that what you're envisioning, like some kind of gusher, like the kind of gushers, yeah, that's, what, that's not when you eat animal testicles, there's no, there's no cream filling. I'm sorry. Oh, well, uh, there's it not. seems like they're juicy. I'm, I'm, no, let's, okay. It seems like they're juicy and Before getting bugged. I can't do it. Let's move on to the next subject. <laughs> but I'm willing to guarantee 
guarantee you it's more of a solid consistency. It's not like some kind of, no, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listeners, but you know, I don't have familiarity no. with those areas, and let's animals are humans. Get, before so. You cancel. Let's move on before you okay. cancel okay. seven years into our run. <laughs> oh uh, let's shift gears a bit, no pun intended, to the story <laughs> of some very bad drivers. Now, the first story I want to share with you is the story of a woman who lost her van in a very interesting way. This is Atlanta, actually. Okay. She was um, trying to back her van into, like, the boat loading dock to go kayaking. Okay. But a spider came out of nowhere, landed in her lap. And so what does she do? Does she smack the spider? Oh, my God, what? Does she shoot the spider away? No. She jumps out of her vehicle and runs. Meanwhile, her vehicle is still in reverse. <gasps> and so her van ended up at the bottom of the river. Oh, my God. Uh, behind a snake. Oh, my God, that's my biggest probably nightmare. Like a long, probably a, a harmless like Daddy Long Legs, but nonetheless... When officers get there, they see that the that the uh, van has floated a few feet down the river. It was totally submerged in seconds. Mm. And so for what it's worth, her insurance company is going to try to get someone to tow the the, the, um, the van out. But, I mean, over a spider. Oh, my God. Be, but I mean, I know. Upset. But again, you know, arachnophobia is real. And when that is the fear of spiders. And uh, people are deathly and t- t- afraid and terrified. I get several spiders. Really? Yes, several spiders at once, but one spider. All it takes is that one. All it takes is that one brown recluse Child. or one black widow. And then she catches the bus around Atlanta because she's because it's one spider. <laughs> oh, hold up. My thing is like, who is our insurance company? Is that is it farmers? Like we are farmers. Uh, is it? Okay. I love that commercial. First of all, <laughs> they're like we covered it. They seem like they cover everything. The so I hope she is like, farmers. Yeah, we see that and like the cars. On the roof. I, I yeah, love, they, they the always have very clever and interesting uh, ways that people can make claims, and so I, I hope she has farmers. Yeah. I hope. I hope so, too. So, <laughs> now, we go from the woman who lost her van in the river to a woman who drove her toy truck down the street. Did, did you know about this woman? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was a woman in South Carolina, and she actually was able to avoid a DUI charge, but was cited for public oh, intoxication. She was drunk AF. Yeah, so she was drunk. <laughs> yes, yes, she was drunk AF. Uh, she was 25 years old. Her name's Megan Holman. And she was cited for public intoxication, but she was actually drunk cruising down the road in a Power Wheels vehicle. <laughs> and it was an electric toy truck. Yeah. Um, and after a caller reported her saying that somebody suspicious is riding yeah, around in yeah. a toy car and they seem intoxicated. Officers say she was driving. She drove about a mile um, yeah, from, um, from yeah, her from home stop her. before they stopped her. Uh, but she avoided that DUI, you know. Uh, so I've never been quite that drunk to get in. I was like a toy a, car. I was but... always like a fit to, to like a toy, like a talker. <laughs> you know, like there's a thing that's every kid's dream. You know, when you're like selling yes, your pink Cadillac, yes. but at 30 something years old, I'm about to, you know. Yeah, and, but I'm, the shade is, is that when I was little, it was my ultimate pen, ultimate want and desire for so my parents to give me a dollhouse. Okay. First of all, never did, never okay. did, ever. I see your parents okay. leaving dolls though. Well, no, I had tons of dolls, but they never bought me a dollhouse. They were really, really expensive. They still are, but I'm fascinated you with anything. The one that was really elaborate, the open, it had levels to it. Oh yeah, yeah I wanted like, the elaborate. like straight up Victorian one with the little baby toilet paper and little apples and yes. everything. I'm obsessed with miniature stuff, and but they were like, nope, never getting it. Not just because yeah. you're an only child doesn't mean no, you're not getting. The want, other yeah. thing that they never got me was one of those riding cars. Yeah. So now they have the cutest ones where they're like Barbie cars or, you know, Hot Wheels cars. Yeah. And now they make like little BMWs. And they always say, well, those weren't invented when you were little. I but grew they, up in the no, 80s. Were, yeah, well, you know, but I'm like, you're you're not telling well, the truth. Well, maybe, but, maybe yeah, for your I birthday wish. next year, Magic, maybe what I'll get for you. <laughs> but I'm serious. You know, because next year, next year you'll be how? It'll be the big 4 baby. Yeah, next year it is my 40th birthday, yes. So maybe for your 40th birthday, I will see if we can get you a, a, a customized Barbie. Okay, I mean, you know. first of all, it wouldn't be a miniature one. It would have to be a well, but it's still one. for people. You, you want to get you a real convertible? No. <laughs> Sorry. Don't, don't make that much money. Yeah, but those yeah, are no. my, like, yeah. you know, childhood wants. And so I love that this woman basically got full and decided, like, you know what? I have always wanted to drive down the street and in, she this, lived. in this talking truck. And right she on. lived. And lucky for her, she only was cited for intoxication. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, last story. This dude also is a very, very bad driver. He got cited, uh, well, he actually got arrested because he actually clipped a police car. Oh, did he? <laughs> no, actually, was he drunk? No, he wasn't drunk. He wasn't drunk. No, what was he doing? What was he doing? He was looking for a clip of Saved by the Bill. Oh, my God. So he's driving on the highway. <laughs> the cop was pulled over helping somebody else. And this dude hit the cop car. And the cop pulled over like, dude, what is you doing? 
and he was looking for a clip on YouTube of Saved by the Bell. Which clip? Well, apparently it was the episode called Screech's Spaghetti Sauce. I don't it's an episode that. from 1992 that centers that. on a flavorful spaghetti sauce that Screech makes during a TV show. Okay. So I don't know. They never got an answer as to why this dude was really, really interested in finding this in this clip. His name is Kevin Bacon, by the way. <laughs> oh, his name is Kevin Bacon? He's not related to the, uh, okay, no relation. We, we can't make this stuff up. No relation. Oh, my but God. Kevin Bacon, he hit, he hit the cruiser uh, in the breakdown lane, and then he fled the scene. Where is this? This is in, this was this, in Vermont. This is in Vermont. This oh, is in Vermont. wow. So, <laughs> you know, distracted driving to a whole other level, child. Oh, my God. And it, it is saying he was charged with gross negligent operation of a vehicle and mm. leaving the scene of a crash. Well, mm. Kevin Bacon, we hope you find your we hope you found your clip while yeah, you were seated in jail. Probably he was trying to figure out the recipe <laughs> for the spaghetti sauce. I know. I just you know. Her. And I'm sure Screech didn't even say that. If it was in the 90s, 92, that would have made me 12... You know, yeah, so I don't, yeah. I don't remember that episode whatsoever. Well, we can, we'll, we'll look it up during, during the. But I loved, break, but... I loved Saved by the Bell. So what have we learned? Okay. Again, bears bad. Bears is good. Bears are okay for bears me. Bears are bad good. for you. Bears is good. We can say bears are buck, and we live. Bears get bucked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when it comes to driving, number one, don't drink and drive. Don't drink and drive. Definitely not. Number two, well, that goes without saying. Number two, if don't. You... Drive miniature cars down regular yes. streets. Yes, drive cars that are made at dealerships. Don't. Yes. Look up YouTube clips while you're driving. While you're driving, <laughs> and then I guess like just keep bugs in your car for spider. I don't know like yes. what the lesson is. With the third one, make sure you have that reserve of raid. Or put that put, the, you... put that parking brake up if you want to hop on the van for your van be in the middle of the pond. Anyway, yes. Anyway, 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 we're gonna talk about black mental health. We really appreciate how committed people in our friend group, people on our social media networks are to really talking about like seeing therapists, embracing therapy, mm-hmm. seeing it not like it's, it's something that's stigmatized, but like, yo, it's part of going to the dentist, going to the Yeah, doctor, it's a part of your going, everyday yeah. healthcare yeah, and maintenance. Prevent, yeah. Preventative health. Yeah, but I love that black folks in particular have been very strategic for a while now with creating more visibility and normalizing mental health and finding therapy um, as a way to deal with everyday stresses and and really kind of demystifying it as a practice and, you know, self-care. Yeah, so I've been trying to find a therapist myself, and I really, you know, I, th- mm-hmm. I thought I was maybe alone in this, but I was like, I really want a therapist, but he has to be a black gay person yep. or a queer man of color. Certainly, yeah. And I was like, I don't like, is that the okay thing to say? <laughs> Same here. And so, yeah, you so know, people, so, about but, it, yeah. but I get that. So apparently... Such for people of color, queer people of color, we want therapists that look like us. They must be LGBT or they must be people of color. And so I was really happy when I saw this piece for Teen Vogue um, called Why I Need a Woman of Color Therapist. So please welcome to the show writer Gloria Oladipo. Gloria, how are you? Hi, everyone. I'm good. How are you? Great. So you wrote this piece about why you need a woman of color therapist. So talk to our listeners a bit about what led you to write this piece. When was it? over the course of your either being in therapy or seeking a therapist, that you're like, yeah, these white people just ain't working. You know, like, what was kind of that little light bulb for you that was like, I need a woman of color therapist and here's why? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I've been involved in therapy for a while. Uh, I started going, like, at least on a semi-regular basis when I was, like, 15. Um, but I live in a predominantly white neighborhood, so my therapist was a white woman. Um, and it just really wasn't working for us. You know, we would just have these really long silences and almost just, there just wasn't that connection there that I think is really important. Um, and, you know, just kind of going through, like, I think the process of treating mental health issues really involved a lot of white clinicians. Um, so I would have, like, white therapists and white psychiatrists and just a lot of white mental health professionals. And I didn't really think any differently because, you know, also, in, like, on the medical side of things, there's a lot of, like, white people. But then when I got to college and seeked out um, therapy there, I had a woman of color, um, and she, like, really changed my life. Like, she's really able to advocate and understand, like, what I was going through from my positionality as a black woman um, and was just really considerate to that cultural need. Um, and, you know, even though she wasn't a black woman, she was really able to kind of, like, you know, challenge yourself to read things I've been writing, um, to ask me to articulate, like, if what was, like, how much I would connect of my past history to race. Um, and she just, like, really did the work that a lot of white therapists aren't willing to do of both being able to bring her own understanding 
of being a marginalized woman of color, but also being able to, you know, try and fill what she doesn't understand since she's not a black woman. No, no, you're absolutely right. And in fact, more statistics have shown that not only do black folks suffer from microaggressions, right? Um, Micro and macroaggressions in the workplace, on the street, right? But also a part of mental health deterioration and stress for Black people has to do with anti-Black sentiments, right, in and around the workplace and in their personal lives. And you were saying in your piece how it was a struggle for you to really engage white supremacy or anti-Blackness as a stressor in your life when you had a white clinician. Can you talk a little bit about how race and conversations around white supremacy and anti-Blackness just were uncomfortable with that first therapist? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they were just uncomfortable. And, you know, I they were uncomfortable because one, I couldn't put a language to it in the very beginning. So, you know, I'd be talking, I'd be processing, like, what's happening and, like, what I'm seeing in the news and what's going on. And, you know, it would just be treated because it wasn't happening exactly to me, you know, because I didn't witness Trayvon Martin die or Michael Brown die or those, like, Black people or Rakia Boyd, any of those people. Um, there was always this distancing created between the white therapists. And, you know, she would say things like, oh, that's really sad, um, you know, and then she just, like, immediately move on, and we wouldn't really process that, even though, like, there was definitely a connection there, um, feeling-wise, and then also just, like, you know, living in an all-white neighborhood and kind of dealing with the consequences of that, so whether that be, like, neighbors surveilling you or, you know, just growing up in school and, like, you know, being victimized in very anti-Black ways and never having the tools to process that, you know, just that wasn't really treated seriously by clinicians. Um, and it just was sort of always this afterthought, you know, compared racism and anti-blackness were never, like, a trauma. Um, but this woman, a color therapist, you know, she was really considerate and really, she was the first one that really put the words anti-blackness and trauma together um, and was really willing to, like, do that work and, uh, like, willing just to say, like, yeah, this is, like, an emotional scar that happens that impacts black people yeah mm. and, and, and i wonder was it a fear of yours gloria i can imagine how this race thing that would manifest was there a fear of being of being misdiagnosed that is the same thing about school teachers and and childhood therapists who are always labeling black boys as adhd mm-hmm. right or Sorry. you know add right that they're so quick to attribute high energy or an active personality to some kind of deficit, right? Yes. And so, you know, I think it's been said that black people and brown people are disproportionately overdiagnosed with psychotic disorders or having our behaviors stigmatized or, or, or say we have psychological flaws. Were you afraid that some things are simply, you know, a reaction to, for example, racialized trauma could be misdiagnosed by a white therapists because there is that cultural disconnect? Um, yeah, I think I'm actually funny enough, I'm writing a piece about racial misdiagnosis right now um, and just kind of the consequences of that. But that was definitely something that I, was, I wasn't I was even consciously thinking about, um, but kind of retracing um, my journey throughout the course of mental health treatment definitely was a victim of. Um, you know, I went in initially to therapy just kind of wanting to see better results in, like, my, I guess, lifestyle. Um, but I just, but, you know, I as I was growing and, you know, getting older, um, I had more symptoms aligning with like an eating disorder and OCD, um, but I wasn't getting diagnosed with those things primarily because both of those conditions are very whitewashed. Um, you know, eating disorders, even though they significantly impact black women, um, were diagnosed 17 percent of the time, according to recent studies done um, published in Nita. Um, and then for OCD, you know, I have never seen a black person represented in that illness. Um, and the, even the clinicians that are responsible for things like exposure therapy um, tend to be white. So there was this really stark misdiagnosis happening um, where, you know, compared, compared to getting those diagnoses that had very specific courses of treatment, um, I was receiving things like paranoid personality disorder and bipolar disorder that weren't really representative of what I was going through and also have a completely different like set of medications that have also substantive consequences. Um, so it was kind of just very, it's very frustrating to sort of have to have this almost like double consciousness in the mental health practice because on one hand, I'm going in as a patient who's supposed to trust the process and have 100% trust in clinicians and whatnot. 
And on the other hand, you know, I have to be aware of how blackness can overcode mental health and overcode mental illness um, and really result in people not understanding what's going on or just completely misdiagnosing it. And, you know, another issue with that was that even when they ask for things like family history, they don't really take into account the cultural significance of that, right? So my parents and family in general, they don't really seek out any mental health treatment, and that's not something that, you know, is done specifically um, with the same family who's still in Africa. Like, when they ask questions like, does anyone have a history of anxiety or depression? That, that question is, they don't really, it's not anything for me because that's not diagnosed in my family, extended or immediate. So those are kind of just the ways in which, you know, that cultural context is missing, and that just created a lot of issues when it comes to, like, actually diagnosing and treating things. No, no, certainly. And that really, really hit home for me in your piece, right? Reliving and talking about with the therapist, the childhood trauma of your family members being searched, uh, watching loved ones get harassed by the prison and police industrial complex, so on and so forth, and how clinicians of color are more than likely to see this as past trauma that you need to heal from as opposed to seeing it as pathology or, like Jay said earlier, um, this type of deficit. You also shared how when you finally met your black woman therapist that she was able to diagnose you and assess and evaluate you in a way that was completely different from the former therapist you had, right? Because this black woman therapist was taking a more robust picture of you as a person instead of just relying upon statistics and all of these surveys that tend to only exclusively focus on white folk, right? So talk to us a little bit about how finding this new therapist has been a breath of fresh air for you, how it's healing you, and then also if you know of any ways in which folks, our listeners, could access a, a network maybe online of black therapists, right? Yeah, so I think that in terms of, you know, meeting this black therapist, um, who was the first one to call her therapist I met, so I just use like, black um, she was really helpful in the sense that, as you were saying, she was really willing to um, kind of view me holistically. And honestly, I just think that she took a lot more care and consideration as me as a patient. Because I think I definitely felt very, you know, invaluable and disposable with white clinicians who would kind of just, even though, even if I wasn't making progress, even if I wasn't enjoying the care I was receiving, would kind of just be like, okay, well, we're doing the best we can, sorry, instead of trying to make treatment work for me. Um, and she was, she was willing to refer me to another therapist of color who specifically specialized in eating disorders. So, you know, both of them were really helpful because, one, they were just willing to admit, like, what they do and do not specialize in and not trying to overcompensate and trying to do everything at the consequences of my care. Um, but, yeah, like, they both had a very, very intentional about speaking, um, putting a language to anti-blackness of trauma um, you know, my second therapist of color, you know, she was really savvy with that. And she really, she really was things, she was, she wasn't trying to make, you know, eating disorder treatment race neutral in the way that it typically is like offered within treatment centers, et cetera. So that was really important. Um, unfortunately she's left my campus. So I'm on the search for a new therapist. Um, I think this piece is even more topical for me because they don't have any other woman of color therapist who specialize in eating disorder treatment. Mm. So just kind of going back and seeing that, like, you know, all you've, you've made so much progress together um, and kind of starting from square one again, just because it's like this, this deficiency in which college campuses, they have their vogue on the language of, yeah, we need more therapists of color, et cetera, but they're not really stepping up to the plate to facilitate that need, um, which is really disappointing. So, you know, it's just going to kind of be a struggle. Um, and I guess to answer that second question about finding resources, I think there are a couple networks I know off the top of my head that are really deliberate with this. So one is Black Therapists Rock is a Facebook group um, that can help people come together and kind of puts out Black therapists in the area who work with Black people and kind of will specialize in this, um, you know, and understand the cultural context of that. The second thing I've heard people say is that what they'll do is they'll just get a psychology today and just kind of go through and see how many, you know, black therapists they can find in their area um, that treat what they're looking to get treated. Um, you know, thirdly, you know, for those who aren't really in the, aren't not really in the distance or parameter of any therapist of color, which is really common 
and it's very infuriating how common that is. Um, there's a lot of online resources as well um, that are making therapy more accessible to people, specifically people of color who don't have that, you know, met in their life. So, you know, there are great podcasts, including like this one, um, Black Girl Own, um, other re- online resources like Sad Girls Club as well that kind of facilitate directly to people of color. And then finally, if you find yourself with a white therapist, um, and uh, I, I so, every so often I continue to, um, which is just really a process, um, I found that the best way to make time useful is to be really deliberate about what I'm looking for, um, provide, have, having to do the extra work of providing resources. So, you know, literally as I, I'm in New York for the summer and I have like a white therapist and on the first day I was just like, you know, I wrote this article that explains why I need a woman of color therapist. Um, I think you should read it. Here are a list of articles I've also um, written about that address mental health and racism and anti-blackness. You should definitely read those. Um, and it's frustrating to have to do that extra work of having to, you know, literally like have her research me as a patient before. But if it means getting a care that's more inclusive and more worthwhile both of our times, um, definitely willing to do it. So I think that's like the tips I have. Um, and then just like overall, just being demanding, you know, I think specifically in the mental health field and medical practice overall, like black people are meant to feel small and to take up to, and, you know, we're encouraged to take up little space because those, those, those realms are never created for us, but, you know, really being demanding for what you want, because I think that no one should have to sacrifice care to make practitioners feel more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. No, certainly. Well, listeners, the piece is called Why I Need a Woman of Color Therapist. It's available on TVogue.com. Our guest today has been writer and activist Gloria Oladipo. You can find Gloria's writing on Black Youth Project, Race Bader, and, of course, Team Vogue. Gloria, thank you so much for being with us. With us and please take care. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, Gloria. Bye-bye. All right. Well, what a wonderful, wonderful show today. Thank yes. you so much to our guest. Leah, it was a holistic the, show, right? We was. talked about mental health, food health. From the rooter and, to the tutor. Yeah, yeah. exactly, right? Oh As I said before. Say that one more time. The rooter to the, the tutor. No, it, don't. I love that phrase. No, don't. I, I hate that phrase. No, I hate that phrase. You know what? I know when you first moved here, <laughs> oh my God. because you are like a Yankee, honey, yes. you don't be using colloquialisms I don't. and phrases. My only but you one... started... What, okay, which one do you use there? My, my use... favorite one that you introduced me to, because yes. you're right, I am, I'm not Southern... Uh, but the colloquialism that I do use that you uh, was yes. a hit dog do I holla. Know, I think you're going to say that with a hit dog holla. Like, I like love a hit dog that, do holla. honey. Exactly. And, and, and the history behind that saying, of course, is if there's a pack of dogs and you want to know, um, you throw, you throw a, a, a rock into the pack, you know which one you hit because it's the one that hollers, right? Yes. So again, like, you know, it's like with the shoe fits wearing or the hit yes. dog holla. So yes. but I love how it always be like, uh, the creek right? You know, you'd be like, what is I that love mean? that too. I love that. God willing and the creek don't no, rise. Yes. Yeah, I, I love, love that. My, my grandma, my grandma used to say that. And even though Nana, um, well, I guess she she was from Mississippi originally, and then of yeah. course she comes up here to Ohio, Middletown, Ohio, and that's where my mama's from. But yeah, she would say that sometimes, yeah. and I thought it was the most like, morbid thing. Yeah, I was like the cousin from the north, and I would come mm-hmm. down sometimes in the summer with my other cousins who live down here. And again, we're in Ohio, yes. right? But um, I'd be like, okay, Nana, see you when you get up from your nap, and she'd be like, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Yeah, I'm like, like, what? I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you mean if the creek? We don't. There's no creek. Yes. So I was really taking them literally, literally. when I wasn't supposed Which to. Yeah, enough, so, so I didn't get it. Several years ago, <laughs> the only American Idol when it was on Fox, when it, I think it was it was one of the judges, might have been Paul Abdul was the judge. They came to Louisville for auditions. Okay. And they, of course, this country boy in cowboy hat auditioned, and he didn't make it. So when it's time to go, instead of saying goodbye, he said, "Okay, be careful," and he leaves. Right. Okay. Now, again, in the South, we know "be careful" this means like. Take care, you know, or Missy goodbye. says that all the time. She said, be careful. She'd be like, all right, be careful. And that's like, I'm going to work. the judge was like, the judge was like, oh my God, is it a threat? Like, call security? And <laughs> the dude said, be careful. That he was like threatening her. He was just like, well, that's what I mean. It's like, okay, kind goodbye. of be eerie a little bit. It's and kind she said, of be eerie. careful. Security and yeah. what does that mean? And, so it's so funny how you Northerners really don't get I mean, Southern well, sayings. and how we take them, like, ser- literally. literally. We really take them literally, and they're not supposed to be interpreted that way. And again, be careful. Our well wishes, right? It's uh, to assure, like, I love you, I care about yeah, you. Yeah, take care. Or yeah, be yeah safe, something or, like yeah. that. Yeah, but Missy will do that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to Kroger. She's like, all right, be careful. It's yeah. Kroger. Right? But it's like, again, <laughs> I mean, you know, you can be met with trauma, violence, anywhere. So I yeah. appreciate it. Um, I think it's uh, one of the ways she expressed love. It's sweet. But at first, when we first started dating, I'm like, be careful. I mean, what? Are you are putting a curse on me, a spell? Or yes. What is the tea? Okay, well, yeah. You know, you know what my, my favorite one these days is, is 
you catch more flies with sugar than shit. Oh, okay. Okay. If you want to say the, the peachy version, I like version, the other one the is catch more, catch more bees flies with, with, with honey than. I thought you. I thought it was you catch more bees with honey than vinegar. You catch flies. You don't catch. I don't. Oh, I don't like flies. Well, please, Bob. Well, I like bees. And I don't like bees. Okay. Well, I like bees for the honeycomb effects. I don't like to be stung or want to go visit the but beehive. You like stuff. But I do. And yeah, then I like the... sister yeah. says... What did she say? Like, whenever somebody does something crazy, mm-hmm. somebody, my grandmother used to say, I was born at night, but not last night. That oh means my like God. Food. Love... <laughs> the stool says, you got to be on dope or dog food. That's what? so weird. You like, got to be on... like, you, either, you either got to be on dope or dog food. Oh, if, you, if, if that's going to go like, you know... If someone's talking to a crazy... Yeah, like, like if, yeah, if you're, if you're going to pull one or pull a fast one on me, you either got to be on dope or dog food. <laughs> Meaning, like, you either got to be like... Have you heard that before? You know, I've you never... Be, like, I've never heard I know, that. I know, either, but it's so weird. It seems so violent. Like, you I like be on dope dirt or dog, or dog food. Dope it's or like, dog food. It's like, what are you being a crackhead or eating animal food? I don't know. Oh, my God. I've never... so funny, but... Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, anyway, yeah. I had fun with you today. I really had a ball. Before we go, shout out to our friends at Young Brands. Yeah, We had a really, really good time. So you and I frequently would go places and speak. Mm-hmm. And we were invited to speak for the folk. At uh, Brown Foreman. And, 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 yeah, well, today, yeah. Today you went to Brown Foreman. Okay, yes. Yesterday you and I went to Young Brands. We went to the Young, So yes. you, you've had two corporate visits this week. I know, I live. Brown Foreman treated you well. Yes, Brown Foreman treated uh, treated me well, and Yum treated us well yeah. um, the other so day. So shout out to and, Michael Maldonado at Young Brands. Yes. Um, Andrea. Yes. And then also, there was one other name. I was supposed to give us. All y'all at Young Brands, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't keep up my notes, but especially Michael and everybody who had us come there, shout out to all of you all. Yeah, we we lived, we had a ball, we learned from you, and we hope you learned yeah. from us. And we really, really appreciate the folks at both Brown, uh, Foreman, and Yum, and doing their due diligence, right? Wanting to talk about diversity and inclusion and being really strategic about inviting two, you know, black queer folk to talk about that. So yeah, yeah, we appreciate that, yes, yes, um, yes, 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 you know, yes, yes. really doing your homework around this conversation around diversity and inclusion. That's right. Yeah. Well, we're out of time, y'all. We'll be back next week. Uh, until next time, Doc, say goodbye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Strange Fruit is produced by Louisville Public Media. Our engineer is Kojin Tashiro. For more information about Strange Fruit, visit strangefruitpod.org. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at strangefruitpod. The views expressed on Strange Fruit do not reflect those of Louisville Public Media, its staff, or its underwriters. Strange Fruit is produced by me, Kyla Story. And me, Jason Gardner. Thanks Thanks for for listening. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org.